You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. What happens when what you've got just isn't enough? This is a situation many Canadians find themselves in when it comes to buying a house. So they look for what they can afford, a condo, a box in the sky. The problem is that in many places, the condo market is in a shape almost as bad as the housing market. And of course, a condo comes without the near guarantee of a stable investment that a home on an actual plot of land gives you. So should you use every bit of your savings to buy that tiny place, or is there a better way? That's this week's episode of In This Economy. And remember, if you want these episodes the day they launch, as well as more content from all of us here at ITE, you can follow and subscribe to In This Economy wherever you get podcasts. I've been looking for a condo since November of 2021, so over two years now. This is Jenny Call. She's a 51-year-old nurse living in Vancouver, British Columbia. This is her first time buying a home. Honestly, for most of my adult life, it's not been something affordable. I have grown up in Vancouver and have watched the market be the way it is. And I thought I would just always rent. A few years ago, Jenny moved back in with her parents to care for her father. In that time, she was able to save up money for a down payment. She also received a financial gift which made home ownership, something she never thought she'd achieve, suddenly seem possible. It was anxiety-provoking because it was the most money I'd was ever going to spend in my whole life, but I was very excited to own my own home. Jenny started her search during COVID lockdowns with interest rates close to all-time lows. If nothing else, it was a good time to be a first-time buyer. The interest rates were below 3%. The market was reasonable is the wrong word because I don't think the Vancouver market is ever reasonable. But it was there were lots of places in the segment of the market I was looking at. Jenny had her money. She was ready to go. But as time passed, it became more and more difficult to take that money and turn it into a home. Within six months of me starting to look, interest rates started going up and up and up and up. Like I had an accepted offer in May, June of 2022, but... And I I would be living in it right now, except it was a probate sale. And because of the delays in the courts, the probate didn't close until after the interest rates had gone up, I think, three times. And I was on a variable rate mortgage. And so then by the time it would have closed, I could no longer even afford, like I wasn't going to be qualified for what I'd offered. And I, I couldn't get the mortgage. Like literally every time I make a gain, I the interest rates have knocked me back. Those rates have continued to soar. Jenny's hopes of owning her own home, though, not so much. I couldn't figure out for the longest time why there was so much competition. It's it's infuriating. And my agent explained it to me last summer. This was his perception anyway, was that because of interest rates going up, people were being pushed out of the larger market. So houses, townhouses, bigger condos, and were wanting to get their money in the market anyway. So it made the one-bedroom market the most affordable area of the market and much more competitive. In more than two years of searching, Jenny has seen 
nearly 70 units. She's made offers on 10. But even though she hasn't been successful, her efforts have not gone unnoticed. My mortgage broker told me that I was the person on her portfolio that has been not successful buying for the longest time. Like, I, I finally beat her record. That's a bad record to hold. I know, it's not a record I want to have. <laughs> At all. While Jenny can laugh about just how hard this experience has been, it weighs heavier on her when she thinks of her work. As a nurse, I work in substance use, so folks with homelessness are a big part of my population that I support. I struggle as a nurse even to pay rent in Vancouver. So uh, it just gives me no end of frustration that there are condos and houses out there that aren't housing people. And it makes it harder for everybody else to afford it. With rents only climbing, even as Jenny continues to search, she's not ready to give up on her hopes of ownership. So Jenny wants to know, Am I buying at the wrong time? If I buy now, will I be spending the most money now that I would be spending? It is safe to say that for most of us, when we dreamt about the place we'd call home when we grew up, before, blissfully, we ever knew a thing about the housing market, we weren't dreaming of a little box in the sky. But with prices the way they are, condos have become a first and Listen, sometimes only option for the first-time homebuyer like Jenny. Unless you're looking at a penthouse suite, across the country, condos tend to be cheaper due to lower purchase prices, utility bills, and maintenance costs, at least when compared to detached homes or townhouses. But even then, the number of Canadians who can afford a starter condo has dropped significantly. According to a recent report by RBC, in 2019, close to 60% of all households could afford to own a condo based on their income. By last year, that number had dropped to 45%. Even for those who have the money, like Jenny, being able to afford one of those condos doesn't mean it's easy to actually get one. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. You're listening to In This Economy. On this show, we help you understand the systems that have created our money problems. And yeah, that's everything from grocery bills and car loans to weddings and credit card debt and condos and the search, the struggle, and the fees that go with them. In each episode of this show, I talk to a person like Jenny who faces a financial challenge. And then we go to an expert who knows that area of the economy well enough not only to explain how it got that way, but to offer us, if not perfect solutions because there are none in this economy, tips, options, ways to work towards what we're aiming for, even in this economy. If you have heard the other podcast that I host, The Big Story, you will know that we have reported ad nauseum on the increasing barriers to home ownership in this country. I am as tired of listing them as you are of hearing them. When it comes to talking about the commodification of housing, 
We sometimes tend to think of this as a recent problem, but people who follow the market closely say, maybe not. It's a very old instinct, so I don't know that there ever was a good old day where, where, where there weren't investors thinking actively about how they were doing in terms of their, the value of their home. I don't know if it's mentioned in the Bible, but it, it, it might be. Dr. Tom Davidoff is a housing economist. He also has experience in real estate development, and he is an associate professor in the Real Estate and Strategy and Business Economics groups at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. He says there are a lot of things that some first-time homebuyers don't consider when they're getting into the condo market. It's not just mortgage payments. It's also condo fees. There's property taxes. Things happen a little bit less so to condos than to detached homes. You know, you have to think about commuting costs, especially if you're sitting in a car, you know, in traffic for an hour a day or an hour each way. You know, there are brokerage fees, so if you're going to be in the place only a short amount of time, probably not a great idea to buy. You know, you want to think about having a reasonably long horizon if you're going to incur the costs of purchasing and selling a property. But there are real costs to home ownership. There's certainly benefits as well. When you look at a condo market, let's start with Vancouver's. How did it become so incredibly competitive. And I ask this not, I understand housing prices across the country have gone up, but some of the things that our listener Jenny told us about, you know, the competitions that she's been in uh, for these places. Listen, it just feels like things are out of whack. And I want to ask you how it got this way, particularly with condos. Right. So you'll always start with supply and demand when you're talking to an economist. And so Vancouver is a market that is challenging to supply government seeing high cost of housing has tried to push developers towards building purpose-built rental. So there might be a little less new condo stock than there would have been otherwise. But generally, it takes a long time to build projects. Uh, They're expensive to undertake here. Construction costs are extremely high. And of course, land is very expensive anywhere decently located near Vancouver. The other thing, of course, is in recent years, there's been a couple of phenomena pushing up prices. Until recently, we had super low interest rates, which mm-hmm. pushed people to find investment in anything leveraged a good idea. And of course, leverage is very available for investment in housing. We've had really strong population growth. People noticed, obviously, uh, student immigration, but generally speaking, immigration targets have been relaxed since the middle of the last decade. And that's pushed up demand. And demographically, we're probably at the end of the uh, echo boom uh, from the millennial generation getting into home ownership. So both supply and demand factors have pushed up prices. And probably, generally speaking, uh, the supply of safe, well-governed cities that are resilient to climate change because of where they are is probably shrinking over time. And so Vancouver, which is a fantastic city, is maybe competing in a bit of a smaller pool. One of the things we've discussed on a previous episode of this show about homeownership as in single-family homeownership is that a lot of the context around why home prices have increased so quickly is the percentage of people who see them as investments and not as a place to live. What would you say, or do we have any data on uh, what that looks like in Vancouver and other cities in the condo market? 
Yeah, we do. Thanks to CMHC, they've identified by market what fraction of properties are owned by investors. And I believe Toronto and Vancouver are are high on that list in Canada. Not surprisingly, given prices, it, it takes a fair amount of wealth to purchase a property. And so it makes sense that you'd see investors taking the place of uh, first-time buyers. How good an investment has a condo been, and how good an investment is it now, and will it be in the future? Looking backwards, I think it's varied over time, but certainly if you've held, you know, in the last decade, you've done well for the most part in Vancouver. You know, the foreign buyer tax came in, and oddly, condo prices surged after that in the late teens. And so uh, we've seen dramatic increases in condo prices over the last decade, certainly in Vancouver. Now, the last few years, not so much, of course. And I am, you know, I don't know, concerned, but I think there's downside risk in the next number of months because short-term rental is a really attractive use for an investor of a condo because rents you can get from a month of Airbnb are just significantly higher than what you get renting it to a local wealth local rents are high, I believe Airbnb or other short-term rentals would earn more. And government is getting rid of that option for investors, Mm -hmm. which may be sound policy, but is probably not great uh, from the investor's perspective. And that, of course, coincides with investors facing either reset mortgages or variable rates. And so the economic cost of ownership is going up just as the benefit may be going down. So if interest rates don't come down soon, I certainly see some short-term risk to the condo market. For someone like our listener, Jenny, who doesn't want to be competing with investors and is literally just looking for a place to settle into and live as she gets older, is this the kind of thing that might enable her buying power to increase, at least in real terms of what it can achieve uh, over the next year or so as this comes into effect? I think it should be helpful, yes, to get, you know, weakening the position of investors should help owner occupiers because they have fewer people with whom they're competing. That should improve pricing for them relative to what it would have been without. The other thing government's doing that should be helpful, but will take time to be helpful, is encouraging the supply of multifamily housing by pushing for townhome plus everywhere where you have uh, single family zoning almost everywhere in the province. And near transit really pushing for higher density. And uh, the federal government's been doing that as well. And, you know, it's not just what Vancouver does. That's happening in Toronto and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, with immigration such an important factor in demand growth in Canada, we do have something of a national market. When we talk about getting people into townhomes or single-family homes, is there maybe a progression that's kind of gotten, and I picture it in my head, please tell me if I'm wrong, like stopped up like a pipe where you you would have these people who were able to afford condos who figured as they aged, as they started families, they'd be able to move into those townhomes and single family homes. But as I think anybody looking at Vancouver real estate knows, that's unachievable for a lot of people. And so you've got those people stuck in condos, which keeps the supply off the market for people like Jenny, uh, who would like to get into that market. Yeah, I can't really comment on that. Condo over the long run has really kept up somewhat surprisingly. And Hmm. we can talk about why it would be surprisingly with single family, at least in percentage terms. You know, the dollar gap has increased. So I can't comment as a matter of fact whether we've seen hindered transitions to townhome and single family relative to the past. Because, yes, the dollar gap is different, but in percentage terms. Now, again, somewhat surprisingly, multifamily has largely kept up with single family. 
Why is that surprising and why has it done that? So when you think about what really pushes home prices higher, it's going to be the land value. Structures get more expensive over time if the cost of replacement grows, and it has gotten harder to build homes. But the real scarcity is land situated in, in good locations. And as a metropolitan area expands, new homes are built typically in worse and worse areas because you have to push farther and farther away from the attractive areas to find available land. And so you're sort of competing with the same new home, but in a worse location relative to your own. So you would expect that what would appreciate is land. Now, condos tend to be built in great locations. You know, you don't put density in a bad location. So single family homes tend to be on average in worse situated places than condos. So for that reason, condos are somewhat land price heavy. But probably a bigger factor is that there's a lot more structure to land. When you think about a condo, it's a lot more physical building relative to how much land there is, whereas single family, especially if you buy an older depreciated single family, really a very large fraction of the value will be in land. And if land is what appreciates due to scarcity, you would therefore expect single family to outperform condo. Why hasn't that happened? You know, one answer might be affordability. After the foreign buyer tax, particularly, there just may not be a large enough pool of buyers with the cash to pay for the true value of urban land. And so you may, you know, financial institutions don't generally buy expensive single family homes. We have seen their entry into sort of entry level single family homes. But Goldman Sachs and BlackRock, Blackstone, they're not playing in the single detached market in Canada for the most part. And so that lack of liquidity to pay full price for land may be why condo has done as well as single family. Going forward, my instinct is if your goal is to bet on increases in housing prices, certainly if you're close to downtown, single family would be the play over condo. But that hasn't been true recently. What metrics do you use when you're looking at properties as investments to determine a good investment from a bad one? If you were in the condo market right now or even in the single-family home market right now, what would you be looking for specifically? The really visible measure people talk about all the time is cap rate, which is a rate of return on the asset, which is how much income do you get from rent, net of expenses, divided by the price. And that's fairly straightforward to think about for a condo if you have a good idea of what it would rent for and what your true full operating costs, not your mortgage, but your operating costs, you can look at that cap rate. If you're going to own or occupy, you have to think about, okay, how much rent am I avoiding paying by owning? Mm. And that's your rental income. So, you know, net income divided by price, we call a cap rate. And that's an important measure. But typically, you know, you'd say, okay, well, I should invest in Winnipeg and not Vancouver or Toronto. Because you'll see Winnipeg or Calgary generally will have higher cap rates than Vancouver or Toronto. So why is that? That's because you have this second component of your return as an investor, which is capital gains. So obviously, you want to buy in a market where prices are going to grow over time. That's not easy to identify, but I think it's reasonable to expect that locations where it's hard to build and where there's going to be persistently growing demand – are going to be where you're going to have higher price growth. And because investors should be more or less indifferent between investing in any two markets, markets with high cap rates, you probably expect to have low capital gains. And markets with high expected capital gains, you expect to have low cap rates. I often wonder if half the problem here for folks like Jenny is that you and I get into this discussion and what's fascinating about it is how much prices of these things will go up or down and not how comfortable Jenny might be living in one of them. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I think people talk about this thing, the financialization of housing, which I think is a bit of a scare word. But at the same time, it would be nice to live in a time where people think about buying a home and really just think about, does this home suit my tastes? Is this the right layout for my family, et cetera? And those are, of course, important considerations. You know, buying a place to live in and being miserable there, right? you know, that just doesn't work well. And I don't know that there ever was that golden era where nobody cared about what was going to happen to the price of their homes. I mean, there have been people at public hearings complaining about neighboring uses, right. trashing their property value since time immemorial. I don't know that there ever was a good old day where, where, where there weren't investors thinking actively about how they were doing in terms of their, the value of their home. When you're talking about condos in a major city like Vancouver or maybe Toronto, what are some things, and the answer to this may be nothing, but what are some things that someone like Jenny, who's just in it to find a place to live, could prioritize that wouldn't be as attractive to investors? Where would you look if you were looking to find units that aren't so attractive to the people who are just buying them to flip them or to rent them out and maybe get in a place where you could avoid some of that? Well, until recently in Vancouver, and I don't know the deal in Toronto, uh, there were rental restricted buildings, which is obviously quite unattractive to landlords. And that definitely depressed prices in Vancouver. Uh, and it may enhance livability. You know, I to disparage renters is a, is a bad thing, but you do sometimes hear from people who own condos that the owner occupants in their buildings are sort of better citizens on average than the landlord. So it's not an issue that the rental tenants are are bad for the building. It's that the owners themselves don't come to committee meetings, mm-hmm. you know, the condo board meetings, don't help out with stuff and free ride on the owner occupants. And so any sub-market where uh, investors and, and landlords rather than owner-occupants tend to be inactive, you'll have less competition for the unit and maybe better prices and, and certainly no worse a place to live as an end user. A lot of the things you've described so far have led me to think that this is just like a particularly bad time for somebody to be shelling out for a condo in Vancouver, considering all the stuff that's being done to find more housing and also to end the short-term rentals at the same time as uh, we still have these incredibly high interest rates that, you know, we're hoping will come down, but may not for a few more months. A few more months, you know, inflation can be quite sticky. I don't claim to have a crystal ball on, you know, when inflation will stop being a problem so that central banks can start rate cutting. You know, I think this is a bad time, I guess, to quote the rap band Houdini, my neighbors from Brooklyn, things could be better, but they're getting worse, right? Right. I I don't think there's a prospect of great improvement. Uh, The supply modifications that BC has put in place, which are terrific and that the feds are pushing for, are helpful, but I think they're going to help make things worse at a slower rate, you know, rather Mm -hmm. than solving the affordability problem in Canada. That doesn't mean the policy changes aren't good. It just means it's going to be very hard even to tread water on affordability. When you look at policy and what exists out there and and what, as you say, you know, is good to do, but is only kind of slowing it. um, What could we do more of? And I understand part of this issue is like, well, we need to build more homes and that takes time. But what else could government do in the meantime to, again, you know, we've got a listener, Jenny, who's got a, a decent amount of money and she's only looking for a one bedroom condo. She can't even get a foot in the market. It's just not enough to make people interested. So 
getting really serious about adding density throughout our metropolitan areas is step one. Step two, I think we need to think about is taxes. Uh, if your listener is currently a renter, our tax code is really pretty biased towards home ownership. Not only uh, are the dividends from owning a home untaxed and the capital gains untaxed, but our property tax rates are really low relative to what they probably should be, which means we rely on income and sales taxes to make money in Canada. So if we shifted the tax burden towards homeowners, that would depress housing supply a bit, but it is literally taking money from homeowners and giving it to renters. And just to point out why that would be a good step economically, not only does it take money from affluent households and give it to working households, but it increases the efficiency of the economy, right? Mm. If you tax housing, we know people are desperate to build more homes, and it's really long queues to get permits that mostly gets in the way, and increased property taxes would just reduce land and housing prices. You know, a tax on income says, hey, don't make a living, don't sell stuff. And that's really bad for an economy. So, you know, having a income tax heavy and sales tax heavy and property to tax light system like we do in Canada in a place with what we call inelastic supply, where it's really hard to change how much housing there is, that manages to have the double whammy of being bad for economic efficiency but also bad from a distributive perspective. And usually in policy, there's a trade-off between the two. To be on the wrong side of both is pretty remarkable. If you were in the position uh, our listener is in as a renter uh, looking to buy, being continually turned down uh, by the market or outbid, how would you make the personal call to decide whether or not to continue your search or to just accept the fact that renting is probably the way to go? What would you look at? Well, one important consideration, as I mentioned, is how committed are you to the housing market where you're located? Mm. You know, if you're in Toronto or in Vancouver and you really need to live there for the rest of your life, you know, given the tax preferences and some other aspects of the market, I think you probably do want to buy. If you say, this is brutal, you know, the thing I'm going to be able to afford is a tiny place very far from my job and I'm going to be miserable, you know, maybe give serious thought to moving somewhere cheaper. And then, you know, your rent and if rents somehow magically decline or prices fall and you're able to enter the market, great. If not, you recognize that you're mobile and able to leave. So I think probably do continue the search if you're quite committed to living close to where you are now. The thing I would say is, you know, obviously you have to ask yourself what's important in a home, you know, in a condo, having enough room for your family, certainly important. Bathrooms are really nice to have for a growing family. On the other hand, obviously, granite countertop, probably not important for your long-run happiness. You know, brand new building, there may be a premium that's pretty irrelevant to your quality of life. So you do want to look at the condo minutes to make sure it's a functioning condo board and that they're keeping the building up in terms of important stuff. But at the level of unit, you know, flooring, lousy paint cheap cabinets, you know, that stuff is more livable. So I would say, obviously, in terms of affordability, try to strip down to fundamentals. But I'm guessing, you know, your listener has already done that, right? I don't want to give the avocado toast lecture. We hate the avocado toast lecture on this podcast. What, what we want to do is find a way to give people who are struggling to afford what they were hoping uh, they'd be able to do. And to be frank, our, our listener is, you know, uh, 51 years old. Like, this is not somebody who's, like, mm, looking to yeah. just get into the market and, you know, maybe have a family or whatever. This is somebody who's been renting most of their life, finally has a little bit of money, and 
is finding themselves thwarted. And maybe what I'll ask as we we get close to wrapping up this discussion is what is usual and what is unusual in terms of how long a search can take in a really tough market, how many places you might have to look at, how and how what kind of role does luck play here in a market like Vancouver's? That's a great question. You know, economists definitely understand that housing is a search and matching market. And you will do better in a search if you're more willing to lowball and slog it out. If you don't mind going to open houses and, you know, you're not embarrassed by bidding less than what the likely win is going to be, that's a favorable characteristic to have. And I do think there's a possibility it is worth taking some gambles here that the market could improve over the next few months. You know, you may run the risk of of a price escalation as interest rates fall, but there is this risk, I think, with the small-time landlords heavily leveraged getting kicked out of the short-term rental business. There may be some opportunities. So Mm. I think continuing to play the game and, you know, know your limit and stay within it, right? So, I mean, one possibility is your listener just hasn't gotten realistic about how much she needs to pay and is not bidding realistically and not listening to her realtor in terms of what price she really has to pay to hope to get into the market. What should somebody do if they find that they've been in the market this long? It's not happening. It's looking like they'll be priced out if they don't keep just plugging away. And what role should they expect their realtor to play in that process? Well, that's a great question. You know, if you continue to fail, obviously, maybe find a better realtor. There's lots of great realtors in Vancouver, but there's lots of realtors who may not have their client's best interest in mind and and just want to get a transaction done and and don't put in legwork. I, I think there's a lot of heterogeneity among realtors. So finding one who you trust, who seems smart and has a good track record, and and you know you have friends who, who've done well in their own search, who did they use? Tom, thank you so much for this. Um, some very practical advice at the end and uh, great explanation of why we're in this mess in the first place. Thank you so much for your time. Now, For those of you looking to break into Canada's competitive condo market, here are some things that you should know. First, and this is a good lesson for people in general, be picky about the folks you're working with. Before you sign on with a realtor, talk to your friends and your family about realtors they know, about realtors they've used, who got them a good deal, how much did they pay for that service. How long did the process take? How long does the process typically take for their favorite agent? And even if a realtor has good references, if you're not feeling that they're listening to you, if you don't like the condos they're showing you, if you feel like they're pricing you out of your comfort zone, don't be afraid to move on to an agency that you feel gets what you're looking for. Next, know about all the costs involved before you buy. Like Tom said, there is much more to consider than just the monthly mortgage payment. On top of knowing the big number on the price tag, tally up your prospective condo fees, the property taxes, the brokerage and realtor bills, and listen, depending on where you're living, the cost to commute to and from your new place. And if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, see if there's someone in the building who could tell you more about any maintenance issues and costs they deal with, anything you can find out to make sure you know how much you'll actually be paying to live there in the years to come. 
Lastly, think a little bigger or farther. Don't be afraid to look in markets outside of your current city. You might just fall in love with a new place or find a home that you can actually afford. And we're not talking the next province over or two provinces over. It might not have to mean leaving your social life or workplace behind. However, like Tom warns, that may mean you'll have to budget for a different and longer commute. Thanks to Tom Davidoff for giving us a greater sense of the cost of condos and why they've become so difficult to secure and for reminding us that concerns about the appreciation of housing and land goes back to nearly biblical times. And of course, thank you to Jenny Call for taking the time to speak with us about her record-breaking search for a one-bedroom condo in Vancouver. Jenny, I hope the search ends soon. I hope your record stands forever. And if you get a condo, you got to let us know. If you would like to share your money problems like Jenny did and get some advice from an expert like Tom, even if it's tough to talk about, we want to hear from you. We will find someone who gets it to talk with us. You can email us absolutely anytime. The address is hello at itepod.ca. If you want to talk to us directly, well, you can't do that, but you can leave us a voicemail. The number there is 416-935-5935. Please remember, if you want to hear back from us, you've got to tell us your name and a number or an email address to reach you at. Otherwise, you are screaming into the ether, not that there is anything wrong with that. We don't need to know your real name. When we talk to you, we do need to know your real numbers. If you want a little bit more of In This Economy, you can find us on social media. We are on both Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, that's right, TikTok, at In This Economy Pod. If you'd like even more of this show, well, you can, first of all, scroll down in your podcast feed and find the other episodes, but we'd like to keep making it. So to do that, we need more listeners, more feedback, more reviews, more ratings. Tell a friend if you think they're struggling with a money problem we could help with. Tell them it's just a good show if they're not. And if you are on a podcast platform that lets you leave a review and leave a rating, please do so. We read them all. We take them all to heart. And we are so appreciative. I am your host and your executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This episode was written and produced by Ali Graham. Our showrunner is Stephanie Phillips. Sound design was done by Robin Edgar. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. That whole bunch of rascals that I just named comprise the Frequency Podcast Network, a division of Rogers. Thanks once again for listening, and we will talk to you next week on In This Economy. 